On the show today, we have Omar Aziz, and he's a writer, an author, a journalist, a lawyer, and a former foreign policy advisor. And he's the author of the forthcoming Brown Boy, a memoir. And this is, there was April 23rd and April 4th. April 4th is the US and North America date, and I believe the 23rd is the UK. So you're currently in Harvard Radcliffe, is that right? Harvard yes. Radcliffe Institute, and you're working on a project that explores the rise of fascism in our time and the resurgence of the far right across the West and the clear and present dangers uh, facing democracy. You've also been a special envoy uh, for Syria uh, via the United Nations. You I work for the special envoy. Oh, you work for the. I was an advisor to him. Yeah. After your after you graduated as well, this was something uh, really fantastic that I read up on you. Um, you served as a foreign policy advisor uh, in the government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, in Canada. So how was that for you? I mean, I'll, I'll provide advice to anyone who who will ask for it these days. But at that time, it was uh, tumultuous times. It was 2017, uh, first year of the Trump administration, and yeah. we were renegotiating NAFTA as well as just dealing with a new kind of world between China and Russia. Uh, it was a very in Europe. It was a very interesting time to be working for the administration, and I would say there was nothing quite like. We learn a lot about theory and you learn a lot about history, but when it comes to making decisions and informing principals who would make those decisions, it's a different ball game, right? Because there's real consequences at stake. I'll give you an example of something that that, that was happening when I was there. It was the Rohingya Muslim genocide that was happening in Burma or Myanmar. It was really escalating. Ethnic Buddhist, Buddhist nationalists were targeting uh, Muslims. And actually, this fell on Ramadan at the time, too, in 2017, in the summer. So this was something that I was there and made a very forceful advocacy that we call this genocide. Right. And that's why we need diverse people in those places, because when we have those conversations, we need to make sure our voices are represented in the boardroom, as well as in the situation room, as well as, uh, you know, across boardrooms across America and the world. I'm glad you've come on to the show today. And, you know, we, we're here to talk about this book. Um, I had a couple of questions I had prepared for you. I don't know if, if uh, they were sent to you, uh, but nevertheless, let, let us continue. Um, this book, uh, tell me about it. Sure. So the book is called Brown Boy, a memoir, and it comes out April 4th, as you said. And it tells the story of my story growing up after 9-11 and being Muslim and basically trying to form an identity as I write while the whole world seemed to be losing its mind, right? War in Afghanistan, war in Pakistan, suicide bombing, terrorism, Osama bin Laden all the time, 24-7. So it was constantly being bombarded. And actually, this might be the first book that I can think of, Farouk, that shows the world from the child's Muslim child's perspective at that time. That's also not fiction, right? That's nonfiction. It says this happened because you're sort of in my mind, in my yeah. skin, so to speak. And I think my people, our people, brown people, as well as Muslim people will really resonate with it because I haven't seen that represented before. Like just a child's perspective because there was a lot of trauma and violence out in the world. And no matter how much you try and insulate a child, that child will always be susceptible to what's going on outside, right? So we tried to have this private Muslim immigrant family world, but it didn't matter. There was war going on, right? So yeah. why I wrote it, so 9-11 is one 
period that's important. And then 11-9-2016, which is when Trump is elected. And I'm in Yale Law School in New Haven, Connecticut. And I thought, wow, the gap between what the white majority understood about Muslims and what our narratives were saying was so great that this guy could win and promise to ban our people, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually was wondering if my mother could attend my Yale Law School graduation because she wears the full hijab and everything. And yes. she had recently visited relatives in Pakistan and, and, and does a lot for Islamic charity and the Islamic community. Yes. So I was genuinely very, very worried, Farouk, despite, you know, privilege or being at Yale, this, that, if my mother could attend my graduation, I was worried at the time. So I thought that's why it was super important to write this. And then what happened after between the Black Lives Matter movement, movement for racial justice, movement to take down colonial statues it just felt like the people and young people in particular were just moving in the direction that i was already going and that it was waiting the, the audience was waiting for this book right i particularly like and i've you know bearing in mind i've only read about 100 pages so far i just like the fact that you mentioned about a child's perspective you know just by reading it i was literally thrown into that world and as a brown boy myself, you know, I could really resonate with the father always being tippy toes around him. And it's it's written so well and constructively in a sense where it just throws you in and you're, you're kind of funnel vision. I'm in this person's mind right now and I, I'm looking at every possible thought and feeling that he's going through. And yeah, I was like, wow. Um, Yesterday, even when I was kind of like before the Tarawi prayers, I was reading some of the chapters and it mentions about Ramadan. It mentions about all these, uh, you know, different perspectives of a parent and uh, even school, like all these various identities. So I want to know about that, like with regards to identity, how lost were you with that? Well, I would wake up in the morning and I would have breakfast. My mom would make us breakfast and get us up early. If it was Ramadan, we would get up at Fajr. If it was not Ramadan, she didn't enforce Fajr as strictly. Yeah. So we would get up and then I would go to school. Okay, she would drop us to school and at school you're different because I'm Omer in school or Omar trying to fit in. I don't want people to know about Pakistani heritage. I don't know, want them to know about Islam, nothing. Then I come home. So I'm fighting and just trying to figure out who I am in school all the time, right? Just trying to blend in. And then I come home from school and then I'm at home and that's like a Pakistani immigrant world, right? We speak Urdu right. at home. We right. eat uh, chicken karai. We just, that that's what we do. And then my mom would take us to the masjid because we would go to the masjid every evening from 5 to 7 p.m. like yeah. every night and then in that world i was a very very devout muslim with my uh you know my qaeda and my uh, and my hat and my uh, just praying and learning and whatnot so i lived in these three worlds that often themselves didn't interact or intersect you know right. and that was difficult in childhood and trying to understand how to navigate those three worlds and how to form an identity and remember outside of my neighborhood far away there is war going on right in the middle yeah. east there is questions of, is Islam promote terrorism? There's questions of, should we, you know, ban Muslims later on? So all of this is happening far away. And even though I'm a kid, I'm starting to kind of, I almost looking back on it, Farouk, I almost think I might've like children can sense this stuff, even yeah. if they don't understand it, just because like the vibrations and the energy and what's going on, right? We can sense, children can sense that tension. And, I, and I, I've been thinking about what the, the generation that grew up as children after 9-11 or came of age, teenagers, how they reckoned with a lot of that trauma that's also we carry with us. So 
Yeah, that's very true. And I'm very glad you mentioned about trauma. Uh, it is something huge that we speak about, especially on this podcast, mental health and the effects of various things that we see and hear around us, especially with the news. We can delve into so many different research papers, but we know that whatever we look at, whether it's on the news, whether it's on our phones, etc., the body keeps score. And all these little traumas that we're having to endure, and I really like that you've emphasized that in the book, and it it kind of speaks for many of us, and that's what I love about it. It resonates with every possible brown boy, whether, I mean, I myself from England, moving to the US, such a big kind of identity, like change. And, you know, like you said, it's, you're a different person, whether you're uh, in college or school, in comparison to who you are at home. And you've really hit on that on so many different levels. And I wanted to ask you that specific day and, you know, 9-11, what, what were you going through? And, you know, I know you touched a lot of it in the book, but what was going through your mind? I recall it was an ordinary day. I recall it actually being a very beautiful day. I was in Scarborough where we grew up, kind of a working class immigrant neighborhood. And I just remember being at school and I think it was recess and someone came up to me and said that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And I was so ignorant of the world at the time. I didn't know what the World Trade Center was. I don't think I'd been to New York City. Mm-hmm. And then as the as I just thought, you know, this is something that's news. And so if it's news, it'll just pass and maybe it'll pass. But when it didn't pass like that night and when I got home and I write about this in the book and saw the looks on my parents' faces and the television, you know, well, people often forget what Westerners might forget is that the Muslim population also suffered an immense tragedy and felt an immense grief by what happened on that day and on subsequent acts of terrorism, you know? So often that was lost in these debates where they tried to get us to condemn it. And it's sort of like, we are grieving with you. We are with you. This is us as well, you know? Um, So, so, so I was a kid. So going back to being 11, uh, I remember we went to the mosque. Then my mom was like, well, we should still go to the mosque. And then we went and then the mosque was closed. The masjid was closed, Abu Bakr masjid, where we would go every day. And I remember that was a big deal because Abu Bakr masjid was never closed. Christmas, whatever day and night it was open, but that day it was closed. And I think they had gotten a security threat. I think they had gotten a a threat that something might happen. And that's why they had closed it. The federal police had told them to close it. This is this part isn't in the book, but this is what I've pieced together. And it 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 was just a day that would live in infamy and live and 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 cast a shadow over all of our lives. And it's something that would basically be in the background or foreground of my life for every day afterwards. Also mentioned uh, a lot of bullying as well at school uh, because of, you know, the color of your skin. Um, Do you recall any times where people were actually nice with you, apart from the people you selected? Because I know you mentioned, I can't remember his name. Shilton. Yeah, Shilton, that's him. No, no, for sure. Of course, people were really nice to me. Uh, Many people were nice to me. My energy has always been that, like, I make friends and I'm I'm kind to others and try to be at least. But... I and I write about those friendships, the dear friendships. Some of those friendships are still with me, you know. But when I was writing about the instances instances of bullying, I couldn't overlook that, yeah. and I didn't want to look away. And even my brother sometimes would would wonder, like Oz, who's in the book, would wonder, like, was it that bad? And then as he would like read it and we would talk about it, he would realize as well that wow, it was like that. 
I think our minds sometimes suppress bad memories. Yeah. It helps us. They don't want it. They want to remove the color from it. Whereas as a writer and as a memoirist, it was very important for me to not only sit in those feelings, but then to go and be able to recreate them so that someone else could feel it too. So it's not only about the emotion, but then from the technical standpoint, then to translate that into a piece of writing. Uh, that's where a lot of the challenge came from. And I really appreciate your words when you say that it resonates with you because that's the experience that I'm trying to recreate, you know? So there was definitely, and then the final thing when I think about writing about bullying is that many kids today go through it, you know? Yeah. Uh, young brown kids, black kids, indigenous kids go through a lot of bullying as well. Uh, poor yeah. kids in school. I think of that and inshallah, I really want to create a world one day or help to create a world where no child is ever bullied in school because it's a really traumatizing and difficult experience, especially when you don't have anyone to talk about it with. Yeah, you're right. Inshallah. And I mean, I, I myself were bullied and, you know, because with our parents, I don't know if it was the same with you, but they were good schools. The actual education was good, but a lot of the stuff that was going on in the schools, as you, you know, I don't want to, spoiler alert a lot too much on the book but mm. um it it kind of like happened to us that you know directly but whenever you'd go home and talk about it it just gets shrugged off like what are you talking about just just go to school or that's if you yeah that's if you felt comfortable enough even bringing it up yeah right because right. and i talk about mental health in the book and our relationship with our parents and how there's often silences and just like suppression of emotion, just putting on a stoic face. And I think for kids that can be deeply harmful. So yeah, you would go through bullying or harassment or being assaulted or have a fight in school and then come home and feel like you can't talk about it with your parents or there's not that support there. And that's something that even us brown adults in our community is deeply lacking, I think is empathy and mental health support and yeah. kindness. You know, yeah. like kindness, generosity, like Islam is not meant to be this super strict, unemotional religion it's meant to offer guidance spiritual peace you know tranquility contemplation submission to that which is greater than us so much that's so beautiful so we can't so, sometimes we can get lost in the the acting out of rituals yeah. and programming but we we lose sight of the human yeah i don't know if that makes sense no it does it does yeah. and another thing i want to touch on when we grew up as children and I'm I'm I keep saying we because again this book has really touched touched on me personally because uh, growing up talking about Islam everything was just scaremongering like you're gonna go to hell and there's chains Dozak. and all this and it's like yeah Dozak, like and I remember I, I actually told my wife this yesterday when I read that part and I literally went running home from mosque. Just hugging my mom, saying, "Mom, I don't want to go to those again." Because yeah. they made us so scared, and I don't think that's right. Because of course, there's that side, but there's also a good side, and there's heaven. Why didn't we talk more about that? The pleasures of heaven and the the sweets and the you know all kinds of stuff that you can eat, or also the <laughs> stories of the prophet. How how yeah. important peace be upon him. How important kindness is, and generosity is, and compassion is, even in our day to day lives. You know, yeah. you are a hundred percent right. I think we we can laugh about it now. At the time, it's very very scary because, and for non Muslims, they might not who are listening to this might not understand. Yeah. 
if you're Christian or Jewish, you might, or Christian, you might get a sense of it. Just the, how descriptive and vivid those descriptions oh of hell God. were. Yeah. And let's just say they felt real, like they were real to the child's mind. So I agree yeah. with you. There's more, there's more strands to our tradition and to, to Islamic culture that should be brought to light for children. And I think it's changing. Like I see a lot, like I see children's uh, Islamic books. I yeah. see different conversations with younger parents for sure to de-emphasize that part and emphasize other parts. And that's the beauty of our religion as well is there is individual communal interpretation. It's very important um, with different generations. So let me ask you this. If someone comes up to you today and says, yeah. who are you? Where are you from? Because I, I myself struggle with that question because of this whole identity thing and this fear of, oh, you know, my roots are Pakistan. And if I mention Pakistan, it's like, oh, you know, you, you suddenly feel this kind of uh, rejection immediately. So what do you say if someone comes up to you and says that? I wrestled with this a lot and so many different answers. Now I just give a factual answer. Now I say my name is Umar Aziz. I was born in Scarborough. Depends how, how much of how much of an answer they want, but I say my name is Umar Aziz. I was born in Scarborough. I'm a lawyer and an author and a fellow. I guess having a book makes it a little bit easier because if they want to know yeah. the long answer, <laughs> I can just direct them to the Amazon page. But I think like ultimately we can't, as we grow older, we realize that other people can have vetoes on our identity and we can't shape our identity to win the pleasure of other people. And that takes some time and some getting used to just that fundamental principle because we're social creatures. So I think forming one's own identity and resisting that where the real answer is like if someone asks you, who are you? Your answer should be, you know, who's asking? Yeah. Right. If it's a stranger that's asking in a aggressive tone, that's one thing. If it's, um, you know, a potential boss or, you know, opportunity that's asking in a very, very kind way, that's something else. So I've become much more attuned to the inflections in people's voices and the tones and subtleties a lot more. And I would say I don't really tolerate the uh, subtle microaggressions or the de centering or whatever you want to call it anymore so and it's a lot of it is pigeonholing as well isn't it like 100 you you're you're from this country you're not from this country you say you're here but where are you actually from because they'll always try to prompt you and i find that a lot in conversations and it i i just feel like well, hang on you know if you track back where you actually came from you were also an immigrant at some point. Of course. You're talking to, you know. So this is obviously the history is there, but not everyone wants to go into that because then it's it's offensive and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You know what right. I mean? Right. Um, I really enjoyed um I mean I I don't know about you, but growing up, I used to be into Tupac and Biggie. That again was part of my mm. other identity, hidden identity, trying to click you know, into certain groups and stuff. And you mentioned a couple of things in there about that. What was it, you know, like in comparison to what it was back then to what it is now, do you feel like it's the same thing? Do you feel like in a work environment, you have to be a certain uh, person or a certain character? Uh, would you talk to people differently at work as opposed to when you're at home? You know, I want to know what kind of hats you're wearing are they the same hats or are they different? I mean, I try and be consistent yeah. in my life. And maybe that is somewhat of a privilege too, because I don't have like 
you know, if you're talking like a boss or you're talking to someone who you report to, you would talk to them differently than you would to someone else. So you have to be professional always yeah. for sure. But I, I don't want to, I might wear different hats, but I won't wear different masks. Yeah. You know, so I could be a Harvard fellow and sit in a meeting and then talk to the news and then do my writing and whatnot, but or do a podcast myself, but I don't want to change up who I am in any of those spaces. Because if I start changing who I am, even a little bit to conform to what the person wants to hear or what I think I should say, number one, that's not really fun for me. And number two, I'm kind of done faking it. What I wanted to ask you, just a couple of general questions. Sure. With regards to the Islamic faith itself, what does it mean to you? The Muslim faith, you know, as I've gotten older uh, and I reflect more, I've come to really appreciate even more so the beauty and complexity as well as the simplicity of Islam. Just the sense of the five pillars, it being so simple, um, the importance of faith. You know, we yeah. say faith, like I've learned about Islam because I think about it every single day, Farouk. Honestly, mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about like Islamic history and Islam, and I love it so much reading about it. And I always think that which is simple, like Allah has also made a little more complex. So for example, zakat is 2.5% of your income that goes to the poor. Very simple, right? But beneath that is something deeper, which is the reflection that that could be us that we should care for those who have less than we do, right? That those of us who have resources and that the entire community should take care of an individual or the principle of fasting as well. You know, it was in this month in the holy month of Ramadan that the Quran came down, you know, that the great first miracle of Islam, that the prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, who was illiterate, became a literate person because of the miracle of Islam and Allah, right? That is, so again, we have something that might be simple, like you must fast for 30 days and not eat or drink water, but deeper into it, there's something that is complex and there's a beautiful message and a meditation. So I would say Islam to me means submission to the universe and that which is outside of us, Allah, yeah. and trying to manifest the principles of Islam as well in living a good life. I suppose I've seen many people in my life uh, who talked a lot about being good Muslims, let's yeah. say, yeah. and perhaps didn't enact it as much. Right. And my Islam is the quiet, contemplative, humble faith that is committed to Allah and God and wants to quietly do good things when no one is looking. Very powerful. Thank you. Do you feel afraid to practice your religion today? In this day and age? I want to say no, but it just takes like one incident, right? And obviously right. Muslim women have it different and they have it much harder because they're visually um, appear Muslim. So yeah. I talk about this in the book at Queen's University in Canada, which was a kind of a waspy school, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, for those who might not know that term. And there were many racist incidents that happened there. And, and some of them are directed at Muslim women in particular. Right. So... I myself am not afraid anymore. I'm only afraid of Allah. I'm not afraid of any person. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of any individual. But I do fear for our society. I fear for the vulnerable. I fear for the less fortunate. I fear for uh, women, Muslim women as well, knowing that violence has been done to them. And I guess that fear pushes me to motivation to help build, uh, work towards building a more just world. And what do you think needs to happen for that change to occur? 
I think people need to have honest reflections and conversations, okay? Because in the UK, anytime you talk about colonial history, white people get very defensive. In the US, you talk about slavery, white people get defensive. In Canada, you talk about the mass graves of indigenous children under Catholic churches. Once again, white people get very defensive. And I think I'm sort of fed up and tired of the defensiveness because this is our history and we share it. And the only way that we can make amends and move forward is by understanding and exploring what happened. Okay. What happened to the people and hear it from their perspectives. I think we've suffered and lived long enough with white people's conscience, having a veto over the rest of our conversation. And by the way, Many white people, if not most of them, want an honest understanding of history. They want their kids to know. They understand this thing. But there's always one section that is opposed. And I think they can no longer have a veto over this. Finally, it's very important that we have an accurate understanding of history because we all need to have a sense and a stake in our future. Yeah. If we don't do that, if we don't have a conversation on history. And then finally, I do want to say that in the Christian religion, it's very important that those who have sinned and done wrong that they atone for it and make amends before God, okay? That is the fundamental principle of Christianity. So yeah. I would say that for our Western societies that in the past might have been more Christian, there's nothing wrong with looking at the past and examining it closely, okay? Yeah. And then coming to terms and understanding and making amends and committing never to do that again. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. I want to end with a couple of quick fire questions, if that's okay. Of course, I love them. Okay. All right, so... If you could meet someone dead or alive today, uh, who would it be and what would you uh, say to them? Let's see. I got a couple. Uh, James Baldwin, the great writer. Uh, to him, I would say thank you. Thank you for giving us all hope and freedom and expanding the definition of what's possible. I would say Abraham Lincoln. I would ask him what he would have done if he wasn't assassinated. Wow. I would say uh, uh, Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he wrote Crime and Punishment and Notes from Underground. And I just find him very smart, witty, and interesting. I would say Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian writer, author of Crime and Punishment and Notes from Underground. Uh, I find him very interesting, funny, and witty. And let's see, uh, who else? I'm going to try and think of someone super interesting. Uh, I might... I might, no, I shouldn't get in trouble for saying this. I would say also the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I awesome. think I would love to open a fast with him, sit down, and um, would have many, 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 many questions. And let's say you were going to write a letter to your younger self. Mm. And what you know right now, what would you write in there? Just a simple paragraph. What would you write? I would say keep working hard. I would say keep the vision. I would say keep the faith. I would say keep your North Star keep moving towards that. And that no matter how bad things seem right now, no matter how dark things seem, no matter how hopeless things seem, that everything's going to be all right. And it's going to be better than all right. And there's going to be great blessings and reward up ahead. And you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other with faith and keep moving forward. That comes to the end of this podcast. And listen, guys, make sure you do check it out. We're going to put every possible link in this podcast video description Whatever we're going to put out there is going to have every possible way you can buy this book whenever it gets released. I'm really loving this book myself. I'm hooked on it already, so I'm sure you guys are going to like it. And is there anything else you wanted to end with this podcast? No, I guess I would just say I had Muslim people front and center of my mind as I was writing this. I didn't want this to only be read by white people and for our community to think this wasn't written for me. So this is written for you. This is written for your family. And this is written for our 
children, our nieces, and our nephews, and may we build them a better world than the one that we inherited. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much.